13. How exciting it is for Israel. They are on the verge of entering the promised land. Sure, they, they have had some reservations and they've grumbled against God and, and their leaders, but, but here they have an opportunity to express their faith in God and to enter what was long awaited for them. A promise that they had received some 500 years earlier. These two chapters, Numbers 13 and 14, mark really the climax of the book of Numbers. We have seen that God has been with them. That He cares for them. That He desires to live among them so that He can bless them and fulfill His promises. And Israel now is standing on the precipice of receiving those promises. But, but there's one little pesky obstacle that is standing between them and seeing another expression of God's mercy and power. And that is their fearful unbelief. In chapter 13, they're going to send spies into the promised land to see the agriculture and the military. And if the spies and the people respond well, then God will lead them into the land from the most natural and advantageous position. That is, from the south, where the the military was not as strong. But if they fail to remember the power and the promise of God, then God will have to deal with their unbelief. And God is patient enough to wait around for another generation of people who will trust Him, who will believe in Him. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, We will look at the whole chapter, but let me just read beginning in verse 17. Verse 17. This is the Word of God. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev. Then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to go and get some fruit from the land. Now the time was of the first ripe grape. Grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Libo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where Ahimman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of the forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek was living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea in the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone, through which we have gone, and spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we, began, we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Ten of these spies come back with a bad report, two come back with a good report, and uh, they're going to influence the, the faith or the faithlessness of the people. We'll see that in the next chapter when we get there. But the problem here that stands between them, the obstacle that stands between them and the promised land is their unbelief. The fact is that they see God as small. We are not able to take this land. This land is too hard. The the fortifications are too strong. The people are too big. We can't do it. The fact is that they saw God as small. And so that's what we're going to see here in the text. That when God is small, first, we fail to believe in His promises, verses 1 and 2. When God is small, we fail to believe in His promises. God sends the spies into the land. Notice verse 1, who ordered, <coughs> who ordered this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So, in some sense, it was God's idea. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses uh, mentions that the people were in favor of it. So, sounds like a good idea. God wants to send them in there. And the goal of the trip was, we're going to see in verses 17 to 20, to find out the abundance of the land. Is it a good land? Are the crops good? What about the cities militarily? How is it? What are we looking at in terms of enemies? And, And the point or the goal of the trip was not to put fear into their eyes to cause them to be afraid. It was to see what God, what they would be able to see that God would have to do in order for them to take possession. Notice the key phrase here in verse 2. In the middle of the verse, spy out the land of Canaan, and here's God, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. This is important. This is what, this is what fuels the faith of Caleb and Joshua. And this is what the other ten spies miss, and really the rest of the congregation as they follow in chapter 14 behind the other the ten spies who brought the bad report. You see, they, they saw God as small because they failed to believe in His promise. I am going to give you this land. We cannot miss that statement. We'll come back to that. Secondly, when God is small, we fail to see His faithfulness and blessing. In verses 3 through 16, we have the identity of the spies. Moses calls the the tribal leaders together and list them by name. Ten of them respond faithlessly and only Caleb in verse 6. And then Hosea is just another way to say Joshua in verse 8 will respond full of faith. The opportunity of the spies was to see the faithfulness and blessing of God. They were to go into the land. God had said, this land's going to be prosperous. Go in and check it out. See if I'm right about that. They wanted to... They, they were able to see God's blessing, but they are also able to see God's faithfulness. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. 
at the end of the verse it says, go up there into the Negev, just another word for the, another name for the southern country there. Go up into the south and then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many. So there's a couple things I need to look for. First, military. What was the military going to be like? Moses wants them to scope out the land so that if they trusted God, this would have been the best method to go is through the south, unsuspecting. The Canaanites would not have known they were around. Far weaker than coming in through Jericho, some of the hillier places. Come in through the south. Moses wants a report of the land. What's the land like? What's the strength of the military? Is it strong or weak? What's the size of the military? Is it few or many? What about the cities? Are they just a bunch of tents like we have when we stop at places? Or is it four to five cities? Are are there walls? And the point is not to scare the leaders, but to remind them that no matter how large or how strong the military is, how, how fortified the cities are, God is bigger. God can handle all of these things, can't He? It was also to see God's abundant provision in verses 19 and 20. That God had promised that the land would be fertile, that they, they called it the land that flows with milk and honey. And so Moses says, give us a report of the land's fertility. Tell us about the trees. And then bring back some fruit from the land. Look at the end of verse 20 there. Make an effort then to get some fruit of the land. And that's exactly what they did. They brought some grapes back. They brought some pomegranates. They brought some figs. Carried them on a pole back so that the people could see this place is prosperous. When God is small, we fail to see His faithfulness and His blessing. Thirdly, when God is small, our problems are big. Verses 21 through 33. When God is small, our problems are big. The, the, The spies, after getting their orders from God through Moses... They go from the southern border of Zin all the way up to the north, Rehob, and then they travel back down the coast of the Mediterranean and make their way back. So they get a really good picture of what the, the, the land is like, what the people are like, what the cities are like. And they even come to some key cities like Hebron, which is near Jerusalem, and there they saw the sons of Anak that were really tall. After they discovered what was in the land, they came back with an evaluation in verses 25 to 33. This was a 40-day trip. Look at verse 25. At the end of 40 days, this would have been about, based on the cities that they traveled to, it would have been 220 miles, 40 days, whirlwind trip through Canaan. Obviously, they wanted to go somewhat undiscovered. That's why they're called spies. Remember what Moses wanted from them in verses 17 through 20? What does the military look like and what does the land look like? Those are the two things. Military and agriculture. And notice their response in verses 26 and 27 because initially it's a good response. And if they stopped here, this would have been great. Um, Verse 27. They told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit. God is right. This is a prosperous land. We are going to enjoy the fruit the fruits of God's mercy. All the spies recognized this fact. God was faithful and, and that God was right about saying that the land was prosperous. But then comes this next word in verse 28. The first word of verse 28 is nevertheless, or if you have a New International Version, but. 
the ESV says, however. So here's a big, huge contrast. Yes, there's lots of good agriculture. We're not going to lie about that. But there's a huge obstacle for us. And that is that these military men are strong. The cities are huge. And they are fortified. Look at verse 28. They're especially afraid of the, the, the Anakim or the sons of Anak. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. And then it tells the people group that were there. And then verse 33, there also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our sight. And so we were in theirs. Listen, we're, we're, too, we're, we're nothing before them. They, they are way too big for us. That's because they saw their God as small. That's why their problems are really big. And Caleb tries to speak truth into the situation in verse 30. He says, we will surely overcome it. Settle down, guys. That's not what I saw. I saw all the same things that you saw, but I don't evaluate it in that way, right? How could he know that? How could he know that things are going to turn out differently than the other ten spies? Why was it that the majority were not right? How could it be that you have these majority leaders be wrong? I mean, is that possible in our days? In our day, even majority religious leaders? You know, that's not the point. The point is, what did God say, right? What did God say? Well, Caleb remembered God's promise from several centuries earlier that said, I'm going to take you and your people, Abraham, and I'm going to bring you into a land that's going to be yours. Then he he, he uh, restated that promise to Isaac and to Jacob. Throughout the generations, they would remember this great promise that God was going to bring them into the land. He will dispossess their enemies. And they will take the land for themselves. See, Caleb remembered that. And he also remembered the promise that was very near to him, a reminder of that same promise in verse 2. Do you remember? I'm going to go out and spy the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Caleb thinking, this is going to happen. This is going to be amazing. Yes, these cities are fortified. Yes, these people are huge. Yes, they are much stronger than us and probably have better military skills than us. But isn't that going to be amazing what God does? See, he saw his God as big. So he trusted. And, and so his problems were small. But the ten, the ten spies in verses 31 through 33 would not be convinced. Notice their response to Caleb in verse 31. The middle of the verse says, We are not able to go up against the people. But why? The end of the verse says, For they are too strong for us. In verse 32, it says that the land devours its inhabitants. So it's basically like a garbage disposal. Large garbage. We walk into there, we're going to be destroyed. And they go on to explain how big these men really are that they're going to have to fight against. They call them the Nephilim. These are not the Nephilim. This is an exaggeration. The Nephilim are the giants from the time prior to the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And, of course, since the flood has come, all the Nephilim have died. But apparently they were larger men. They were tall men. And in order to embellish how tall they really were, the sons of Anak here in 
the land of Canaan at this time, they say they're like the Nephilim. They're, they're effectively descendants of the Nephilim. And look at what we look like in, in their eyes. Verse 33, the second part of the verse says, And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. We felt like little tiny creatures in comparison to them. And that's what, how they saw us as well. But you know, it doesn't really matter what Israel looked like in comparison to the sons of Anak. The real question is, what did Israel, with God on their side, look like in comparison to the sons of Anak? See, they didn't see it that way. Remember the story of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 6? He had this opposition with the Syrian army. Elisha knew that the Lord had sent an army of angels to protect him, but his servant did not see it. So Elisha prayed that the servant would see, and the Lord responds, and the servant sees that the mountain is full of horses and chariots of fire. This is the kind of vision that was missing from the ten spies. This is the kind of faith that was missing from the ten spies. They rightly saw the prosperity of the land, and they should have given credit to God for being true to His promise that we would come into a land that was very prosperous, but instead, the nearness of their their trial, their difficulty that was standing in front of them, scared them away from the power of God. They had their eyes focused on what was big and didn't have their eyes focused on God. See, they they considered their battle only in terms of what they could do alone. Look back up to verse 28, because here's how they should have responded. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And here's how they should have responded. But God is what? But God is stronger. Yes, they are strong, but our God is stronger. And the next line says, The cities are fortified and very large, but with one word, our God created the universe. No cities are no match for our God. The descendants of Anak are there, and they are as big as the Nephilim. But our God is bigger. They are no match for our God. But these spies failed to see the power, the faithfulness, and the abundant provision of God. They had forgotten the works of the Lord in delivering them from Egypt. Not academically. If you gave them a quiz, ask them about all the details of, of the, the, the exodus. And what happened? It was only a year and a couple months earlier. They could have told you. They could have answered it 100% correctly. But when, I'm, when I say they've forgotten the works of the Lord in Egypt... They've forgotten it spiritually, haven't they? They could tell you the facts, but they can't tell you how that is significant for their near circumstances, their, their pending circumstances. We will see next time that this is not a little mistake on their part or a minor slip-up that they kind of had this wrong evaluation. But rather the sin and fear and unbelief is a defiant sin against God. It is rebellion against God. We're going to see that in chapter 14, verse 9. So what is this chapter all about? How can we summarize it? And I would summarize it this way. There is an inverse relationship between the size of our problem and the size of our God. There's an inverse relationship between the size of our problem and the size of our God. Let me explain what I mean by an inverse relationship with an illustration. Speed and distance have an inverse relationship. So think about the relationship between the average average speed of a vehicle 
and the length of a trip or the distance that you're traveling. Our family is traveling to Iowa this week, and we know that the average speed of the vehicle is inversely related to the length of the trip. So that is that, that the faster a person goes, the faster a person gets there. The, the, the quicker the distance is, is covered, right? So that assuming no accidents, we'll have a shorter trip. But the slower we go, the longer the trip is, right? So there's an inverse relationship. Do you see what I mean? Between speed and distance or speed and length. Or how about insulin and blood sugar, right? As insulin levels go up, blood sugar levels do what? They go down. So we have an inverse relationship between insulin and blood sugar. And I think that's what's going on here in our text. There's an inverse relationship between the size of our problem and the view we have of our God. The people are fearful of what the Canaanites can do to them, but they failed to remember that God was on their side. And so they take what is sure and true, God, His power, His promises, and they set that aside for, for fear and unbelief. They, they, they see their problem as too big. They forget the fact that God said, I am going to give this land to you, verse 2. Verse 9 of chapter 14. Joshua and Caleb are speaking here and they say, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So, you see how big their God is to them? In their sight, we don't have to fear anything because the Lord is with us. The Lord will give us the land, chapter 14, verse 8. You see, if we see God for who He is, a big God who can accomplish anything and who will accomplish all that He has promised, if we see Him for who He is, if our eyes are full of faith, then our problems will be small. I think the opposite is true as well. That if we don't have much faith in God, if we minimize the greatness and the power of God, we put God into a box, so to speak, then our problems are going to be huge. When our problems are big, God is small in our eyes. When our problems are small, God is big in our eyes. Let's think about a couple examples of people who saw God as small. When I say small, I don't necessarily mean that they they made an idol out of Him or that they picture Him as a little tiny person put up on a mantle, but rather that they minimize the greatness of His works. They, they take the powerful acts of God that ha- have been done in the past, and they, like these ten spies in Israel will do later, they put those ideas into a box and they say, you know what, That's we'll just mark that as abnormal, or, you know, kind of once in a lifetime, yeah, the exodus, the, the manna, that's kind of an anom- anomaly. An anomaly. So we're just going to put that off to the side. That's not the way God normally acts, so we're not going to trust Him. And this big problem that's here in front of us. They, people who explain away His past acts of power, thinking that He'll never do them again, because there's something missing in God. He, he, there's some inability in God. How about 98-year-old Sarah 
who was promised by God that she would bear a son. What did she do? She laughed. God's response to her laughter in Genesis 18:14 is, but is there anything too hard for the Lord? But no one's ever done this. God, you, you're saying this is going to happen at this time next year I'm going to be pregnant? And God says, no, actually, you're going to have the son at this time next year. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What about the same kind of phrase that was stated by the angel to Mary when Mary was told that she would give birth to the Christ child and her response is, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel's response is, nothing is impossible with God. Again, is there anything too hard for the Lord? What about the disciples when Jesus sent the, the greedy young ruler away? He said to the disciples, it is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples replied, wait a second, you're saying if a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God, what hope do we have? I mean, those are the people who are blessed in society. Those are the ones that God's pouring out His blessing. If He can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus' response, with people, it is impossible, but not with God. So the point is that salvation is impossible for us, but not with God, because all things are possible with God, Mark chapter 10. Or what about the disciples who didn't bring enough bread on the boat? Jesus says, don't you remember the 12 baskets full when I fed the 5,000? Don't you remember the 7 baskets full when I fed the 4,000? Do you still not believe? See, their God was not as big as He ought to have been in their sight, and so their problems were bigger than their God. They saw God as small. But there are other examples in the Scripture of people who saw God as big. Other servants of God who took God at His word, saw Him as big, powerful, faithful, the one who desires to bless, like Job who in the face of unimaginable loss believes that the Lord was good and faithful, and he says immediately, the Lord is good. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or like Abram, when he's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a place that he did not know. Or what about Joseph, when he trusted in God's goodness, even when he was betrayed by his brothers, left alone in Egypt, betrayed by Potiphar. He knew all along that God meant it for good. Jonathan, before killing the Philistines, said the Lord is able to save by many or by few. 1 Samuel 14. What a huge task for him to climb up a, a, a steep cliff and take on 200 Philistines with just himself and his, his armor bearer. And he sees God as big and says, if God wants us to go up, we'll go up. Because the Lord is powerful about David and Goliath? Remember David's question to the armies of Israel and then to Goliath himself? How can this uncircumcised Philistine continue to taunt the armies of the living God? This is a defiance against God himself. And I will not stand for it. God will not stand for it. I'm, I'm going to go up against him. How about Joshua before Jericho? Listen to what God says to Joshua in Joshua 1.5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What? How can you say that, God? Listen to the reason. 
Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Joshua immediately prepared the men and said, Go and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess it. See, Joshua understood that his God was big based on the fact of God's actions in the past, what God had done to Moses and to the other descendants of Moses. That affected how Joshua viewed his God. And I could give you a hundred more examples, but the point is, it's not about the size of our problem. It's not that our God is not big or that He's incapable. It's that our view of God is distorted. We see God as small and unable. But if we see God with eyes full of faith, then the size of the obstacle in front of us doesn't really matter. Because when our problems are big, our God is bigger. Do you believe that today? I'm not trying to minimize your cancer or your job loss or your health, uh, your health challenge or, or your marital conflict. I'm not trying to say that your financial crisis doesn't exist. I'm not calling for you to bury your head in the sand or to have some kind of Pollyanna kind of attitude that, that you know what, if, if I believe enough, then all these problems are going away. Because not, God never promised an easy life. God never promised a cancer-free life. God never promised a conflict-free marriage. So I'm not, that's not what I'm asking for. We just need to believe more and we'll get rid of all of our problems. But I do think we need to make two applications here. First, where God is clear about our future, we can be sure that He will fulfill His promises. Where God is clear about our future, we can be sure that He will fulfill His promises. So every promise that you have from God about your future is going to come to pass. God will fulfill it. So, has God promised to finish the work that He started in you? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Has God promised to vindicate you in the end and destroy your enemies? Has God promised that living for Him with eyes of faith will be worth it? Has God promised to reward you for the troubles and the persecutions that you endured as a representative of Him? Has God promised that Jesus will return in great power and glory? Well, those promises are clear. So grab on to those promises. Hold on to them dearly. Expect them to come to pass because they will. So when it comes to clear promises, then, then we should be sure and confident in them. It's good to know that God will follow through on His promises, but what about where God is silent? What about this cancer that wrecks our bodies? What about this elusive job or job promotion? What about the peace that I want in my home? What about the unrest in our nation? What about the safety of my children? What do we do there? When God hasn't spoken specifically about these things, it's important to recognize that there's a huge difference between Israel and us. And that for Israel to accept this land, God had already promised to them that they would receive it. And if they had trusted Him, apparently God would have allowed them to go into the land. So here's the second application. That is, where God is silent about our future, we can or we must rest in the promises of His faithfulness, His goodness, and His presence. And this is where the principle of 
the inverse relationship between God's bigness and our problems size is still true. That is that when we don't have a specific promise, can you think of some people in the scriptures who believed in a big God even though they didn't have a promise of immediate deliverance? The first example that comes to mind for me is the three Hebrew young men in Daniel chapter 3. They had a huge problem before themselves, didn't they? And on top of that, they didn't have a promise from God that they would be delivered. But they believed in a big God, didn't they? They believed that God was powerful and that God was good. You see, God never promised them that they would be spared from the fiery furnace. But they knew what was right. And they knew how powerful their God was. And so here's what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar just before being thrown in. O king, we know that our God is able to save us from the furnace. You see how big they see their God? This furnace is a huge problem standing, staring us in the face. But we know that our God has the power to save us from this furnace and to deliver us from your hand, O king. You strongest king in the world, you're nothing before my God. He could deliver us if he wanted to. Listen to this next line. But if not, if God doesn't choose to deliver us from this furnace, we will still not bow down to an idol. Friends, this is faith. They see a big problem, but they see a bigger God. They know that God is good, that He's powerful, that He is able. But even if God doesn't choose to spare them, they want to make their dying declaration loud and clear. They will not defy their God, even in the face of trouble. You see what's going on here? Their problem is small because they're focusing on the bigness of their God. Let me encourage you this morning. I'm not arguing that your problems are small. Your problems are real, and they are often big, beyond our ability to control. But you cannot be defeated when God is on your side. The worst that cancer can do to you, the worst that your enemies can do to you, is what? Take your body. But even in death, as a Christian, you have victory, don't you? If you are in Christ, you have victory. David wrote in his closing song in 2 Samuel 22, In your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale a wall. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? That's the bond that we need, that we long for, that we embrace. These problems that come, yes, they're real, yes, they're big, but they're not as big as our God. Father, thankful for the reminder of your word, how uh, easily our eyes can, can uh, drift away from looking at you and your promises, your faithfulness, your power, your goodness, your ability, and move on to our circumstances like Peter when he walked on the water. He had his eyes on Jesus. He was fine, but then he started to look at the waves and the wind around him. He started to sink. It's a good picture for us of 
what our lives are like when we, when our spiritual eyes drift away from looking at you. And Lord, we are ashamed to admit that that is too often the case. We are maybe even more often like the ten spies than we are like Joshua and Caleb. So would you give us the eyes to see again fresh how big you are. Be rem- remind us of the great acts of power, faithfulness, and blessing that you have done in the past as we look at your word and, and in the past of our own lives. We, we have seen you do great and abundant um, and shown great and abundant mercy in our lives. And, and so, Lord, help us not to forget that like the disciples forgot the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. May we take these real events that have taken place and apply them to our current circumstances so that we know that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, you comfort us and you have prepared before us a table before our enemies. They watch on and can do nothing and our cup is going to be filled and overflowing. That blessing is coming, Lord. We look forward to that just like Israel did back when David wrote that psalm. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, strengthen the focus of our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.